0: Welcome to Grandiose Grammar. I'm Aoife, a grammar enthusiast and a lecturer at Philipps Universität Marburg. This week, I've got part one of an interview with my friend Anna, who's also an educator. We're talking about teaching English, imposter syndrome, and Anna shares her method of teaching Germans how to use the present perfect. Let's start by finding out what the turning point for Anna was and how she realised that teaching English could be a career and not just a job.
1: Yeah, well, I guess I kind of didn't really intend to do it for a long time when I started. But then I like had a moment about six months in where I was like, I've actually never enjoyed a job as much as I enjoy this, but maybe I should turn off the like job-seeking emails I'm getting <laughs> because I've never been happier.
0: <laughs> what was the turning point? What was the thing that made you think, oh, this could actually be a career and not just something I'm doing to kind of tide me over?
1: I think maybe it was like a personal... Yeah, I think maybe that realization of how much I enjoyed it, and maybe I think maybe in conjunction with getting some good feedback from work, in that I was actually doing it well. um, I think maybe that kind of coming at around the same time kind of changed my perspective on it. Because I think uh, I kind of, when I reflect on like other jobs or interning that I've kind of think positively of, a lot of it was more about my hope for the future rather than ever actually enjoying what I was doing in the moment. And I think I had a moment where I was like, okay, I'm not really sure what the future looks like in this job, but I've never actually had so much joy coming to work. I've never actually enjoyed what I've been doing and felt so good about it in the moment. And that that was actually something quite special.
0: Is there a particular thing about the job that makes you enjoy it? Is it because it's it's varied and you meet lots of different people? Or is it a deep-seated interest in language?
1: I'll go with a bit of column A, bit of column B. I, th- <laughs> I mean, I think I do. I am a people person. I'm the kind of person, I bring big energy. And when that's reflected and bounced off the people around me, I find the most enjoyment and the most fulfillment. Um, but I've also yeah, always been a language nerd and I do enjoy that. And I think, I think that was also a, a kind of aha moment at some point where you know, maybe at first they would have said, oh, I really like it because I have a lot of high level classes and half my job is sitting around having interesting discussions with intelligent people. But then I had a few like lower level regular classes. And I remember like finishing a a grammar lesson where I'd been drawing my timelines on the board and it was really basic. And then being really energized and being like, oh, I actually really love, love this aspect of it as well. It's not just reading a newspaper article with someone that's a C1 level. It's also the the smaller things and seeing those kind of aha moments in the students when they get something and how their ability to communicate rises.
0: I think if you're an enthusiastic instructor, you'll also have enthusiastic students because it's contagious.
1: Yeah, I guess it's interesting because, I mean, it's a job where you don't actually get to see a lot of how your peers operate. Um and so it's kind of like, okay, I think I'm doing all right, but you don't actually get a lot of peer feedback. Um, but there are some times where we do job sharing, um, like class sharing. So maybe be- either because someone's on an intensive or because of the way a certain company structured it, where I'm not the only one dealing with a particular group. And then you kind of chat to your colleagues and you know, a colleague might say, oh, I found them really difficult. They had no energy. And I'm like, oh no, <laughs> Quite liked it. It worked quite well, and I think I mean you just connect with different people in different ways, and I think different people's like your personality can also play a lot when it comes to adult learners.
0: I think the classroom dynamic is a is an interesting one because if you mess it up right at the beginning, you're doomed. You know, <laughs> in a classroom, there's a point at which you cannot rescue things.
1: I, yeah, I guess I would agree with that to some extent. I think first impressions matter. Um, And I do think particularly, like, I mean, I'm not so young anymore, but as a young woman and as a woman who likes to dress femininely and to wear bright colours and fun clothing, I do sometimes feel that bit of extra pressure um, in the very first lesson or two to prove that I actually know my stuff. And and even if I'm wearing something bright yellow and ruffled, it it doesn't mean that I don't also have something to impart.
0: A lot of the people... I know who work in academia or in some aspect of teaching have imposter syndrome so lots of them think oh how did I get here I I don't really know how this happened to me and I don't really know if I'm good enough to do it I think that's interesting and I wonder if it's like limited to just
1: the women that I know yeah I mean I guess it's documented that women do suffer from imposter syndrome more than what men do i think in some ways i don't feel that within myself i think i've reached a point you know i've been doing what i do for four years now um and the feedback i've received from students from colleagues from management has all been very good and i i feel quite confident with what i do I think what I feel less confident with is when what other people perceive as a real career because I don't have an, edu- uh, an academic background myself in teaching languages. Um, and maybe particularly, I know we referenced earlier in the day the um, German snobbery around educational qualifications. Um, one of my best friends met uh, another friend of mine, a Scottish woman who does have a, a degree in education, And the first thing she said was, oh, so you're a real teacher, (laughs) not like Anna. Um, (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) I mean, in one way, I'm offended, in one way, I'm not. But I feel like um, maybe a bit less when it comes to the the real businessy English that I do rather than teaching children. But I feel like there's this stereotype, okay, you're an English native speaker in a foreign country. You fall into this. You're not really qualified to do it like, I don't know, I feel like it's in some people's minds, not too many notches above a very minimum wage, no skilled job. And I mean, obviously I think f- as an insider, I think, you know, there's only a very small number of people that really do do it well and that it does take a lot of skill and knowledge to do it well. Um, but I do sometimes feel like the perception from the outside is that I don't really have a, a real job that I'm qualified to do. That's,
0: absolute snobbery though isn't it because anyone who's got a degree say in in teaching and has done the pedagogy bit of it and goes on to become a teacher will never be questioned even if they're completely unsuited to the profession and by the same token people feel like they can question you even though you've been practicing a profession for many years.
1: So I do yeah so I think the imposter bit almost comes more and the question I dread most is when my students ask me, like what I studied or, or things like that, because that's when it creeps in. I think if if I never actually have to explicitly say that my degree is not in either education or in English, um, you know, I don't think my ability is questioned, but I always feel in the hot seat when that question comes.
0: As an academic, I think that university exists to help people to learn to think and to question their environment and it shouldn't matter if your degree is fine art and design or business studies or English you've still learned those basic skills you've still had a a good foundation in how to think how to assess material how to decide whether something is a good argument or a weak argument And they're all skills that you still need for your job. Just because you haven't studied pedagogy doesn't mean that you can't teach.
1: And I mean, that's the view that my employer takes. So the the kind of minimum requirement um, for people in the foreign language departments is a bachelor's degree in anything. Um, I think in the German department, I guess by virtue of being in Germany, I think they do have a slightly higher standard. I think it's quite rare to find someone whose degree isn't linked to the German language, to translation or to pedagogy. I think they, being in their native country, they, yeah, they finesse it a bit more.
0: I'm definitely in the camp of pedagogy is learnable. There are some skills I think that aren't learnable. (laughs) So like, if you just don't like people, you're in the wrong profession.
1: So I guess we, yeah, we give all our new trainers a basic onboarding uh, yeah, week, two weeks. It kind of depends on how many we're onboarding at the same time in our method. And we're very much a learning through speaking, learning through doing, immersion in a practical context.
0: Anna works for one of, one of the big three.
1: It's, a, it's an international franchise language school. I guess you can probably narrow it down knowing that and the kind of <laughs> learning through speaking, learning through doing.
0: That's also an interesting pedagogical approach because it's one that not everyone takes. No.
1: I think it can also be interesting, particularly with adult learners, when the, the only contact they've had with foreign language learning has been in a school or university setting. Um, and then you do get those questions like kind of, oh, like we should do more grammar and I think a lot of sometimes our our method is to kind of hide the grammar in a more conversational exercise and they don't realize quite how much they're doing Um, some people love that because they hated learning a foreign language at school or university other people do constantly feel like uh, we're having a bit too much fun
0: I don't think there's such a thing (laughs) as too much fun (laughs) when (laughs) you're learning (laughs) I think as a learner, it's really important to have fun because if you don't have fun and you don't have that sort of sense of, oh, this is exciting and I'm, I'm interested, then the impetus to learn is not as strong.
1: Yeah. I think it's that level of engagement when you're having fun, you know, we do a lot of role play, a lot of partner work um, in what we do. And I think people are then really engaged, they're concentrating on what they're doing rather than watching the clock um, or checking their WhatsApps or. <laughs> I mean, obviously, adult education, you know, um, I'm not going to tell a business person they can't have their phone sitting in front of them. But I think as a trainer, I view it as a bit of a personal failing if someone's on their phone because I think, okay, I'm not engaging enough. What we're doing isn't engaging enough. So it kind of it pushes me to, to call on them to make what we're doing more dynamic so they don't have a chance to do it rather than taking a discipline, please put your phone away approach to it.
0: I hate when my students um, pull their phone out and they're texting their friend. But sometimes it's amusing because they think that I can't see their phone. Yeah. So you know they've got their phone out and it's under the desk Yeah. and they think that I can't see it, but I can't, obviously. But I also don't feel personally responsible for entertaining them enough that they don't pick up their phone. But I guess the environment that I'm teaching is very different.
1: Yeah, I mean, generally my group sizes are rarely more than eight people. And I would say often and less than
0: six eight is lovely i think eight is a really nice number it's enough that you can do group work you yeah. can keep an eye on everybody but it's also not like you have to entertain every single individual i sometimes i used to find um individual one-to-one lessons sometimes very difficult especially if the person i was teaching had very low level of english and the range of things that you can talk about is extremely limited
1: you t- yeah i would take a more structured approach to one-to-one learning at that level and often at a higher level, one-to-one learning can be very conversational. But to be honest, I don't have a lot of real A1, A2 learners um, because they've all been taught so wonderfully in schools by these <laughs> wonderful English teachers that you're training. <laughs> the look on Aoife's face now says it all. <laughs> I, think,
0: I think Anna might be slightly overconfident about um, the state of the German education system.
1: Yeah, well, I guess one thing that I did think would be interesting to talk about today then is I guess what I see, what people remember from school, what they don't remember, and which aspects are helpful and which aren't.
0: What kinds of things do they remember from
1: school? Um, he, she, it, das, es, muss mit. I've... <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> <laughs> I've had people that are like 22, people that are 62. When I correct them on their conjugation, they will yeah, parrot that back to me. I think that stays with every German forever.
0: If and would is not good.
1: (laughs) Yeah, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these little rhymes, these little rules, that really stays with people for a long time. I mean, when it comes to kind of rules, I think, so often when I'm introducing grammar... I'll introduce it with a question our method of teaching is really we call it fishing rather than just giving them information and so you know my my question to the group well how do I know when should I say I have done it when do I say I did it and one thing that keeps coming back to me with learners of all ages whose experiences in the German education system have obviously spanned decades is particularly when it comes to the present perfect I'm continually told it's about whether the action has an impact on the present. Um, and I find this the most useless, inapplicable rule because I say, OK, I drank a coffee before work. You know, do I know which tense to use because I still feel hyped up by the caffeine? Like this, this tells me nothing.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really, really um deep-seated belief amongst Germans that present perfect is past time related to present time. And I guess to an extent it's true, but you're right. It's not a helpful, not a particularly helpful way to decide which tense to use. And that problem is also compounded by the fact that Germans use the perfect when they should actually be using the past simple. So a German will be more inclined to say, oh, Ich habe es gelesen, mm. instead of Ich las das um and that kind of transfers over into english where they think that you can use the perfect in a lot of instances where you can't in english
1: yeah definitely so i tend to th- yeah draw little diagrams and, I, and talk about time boxes so i have yeah does the time box come up to the present is it an open time is, are we in the, are we in the same time box as the action or have we closed the time box am i in a different time box to my action um and because I am a caffeine addict, I do often tend to use the coffee as an example. I could be talking about my same daily coffee at 7am. Um, yeah, I drank a coffee before work. I have drunk two coffees today. Um, and whether I frame it as today, a t- where I'm in the same box as the coffee, or whether I frame it as before work, now I'm at work, my coffee was in, is in another box.
0: That's a really nice way to describe that.
1: So I, yeah, I have. A, I, I normally either yeah, draw it spontaneously, or we have we have a bit of material with some kind of similar diagrams, um, and so then you know you have a really simple way of seeing. You brainstorm all those signal words. Which words tell me that the box is closed? It's yesterday. It's last year. All those words put me in a new box to the action, um, and then all our typical signal words for present perfect leave it in an ambiguous sense or put me firmly in the same box as the action. And so I find like something like this, it's a very, a thing they can apply very practically, you know, and it's not about, you know, this kind of unclear, does the action have an effect on the present, how long ago it was.
0: My test for the perfect would be indefinite time, indefinite number. If I don't know exactly when it happened or exactly how often it happened, it's perfect. But I think your one is far more useful for someone who isn't approaching this maybe in a, from an academic background. For someone who's just coming at it from a practical background, I need to be able to use this. Putting the time boxes and asking yourself, am I in the same time box, is a really helpful way to view that. I might steal that. <laughs> <laughs> My yeah. first years, I think, would really like that. I've had quite a bit of success with it. How do you deal with the progressive? Because that obviously spans or can span more than one box.
1: So I would think like a big thing for us is we don't... I guess you wouldn't have such a a comparison in one go. So in our program, like getting your head around the present perfect takes quite a while. And I guess um, so the perfect progressive uh, comes in at a later point. I think this is a hard one because I think as a native speaker... And I guess, I don't know whether you might disagree with me as a grammarian, but for me as a linguist, there are some more gray areas here. And so I tend to, uh, I mean, we're all about exemplify, not explain. So I would always come at it with examples. I have a few classic examples that I bring up to emphasize is is it about the action um, or is it about the result? So we tend to look at it from an action result perspective. What's more important? Do we want to imply that it's continuing? But one really good example that I often do, which is a really interactive one, is to ask the class for an example of someone who's changed their life. Yep, because it's, it's about... Because the perfect progressive is normally about a, a habit, but it's not a habit that's been around forever. Um, and to be honest, in the last couple of years, the best example of this is Donald Trump. <laughs> so... <laughs> it's an engaging, it's a controversial example. Okay. So I, I create two columns on my flip chart or on my board, and then we brainstorm four things that Trump has done in his life. So normally, you know, he has made a lot of money. He has built towers. He has Uh, got married three times so we come up with these examples and it's almost like a, a CV type list of achievements okay and then on the other column we say okay since he became president what has he been doing and so we say okay he has been signing executive orders he has been trying to build a wall he has been creating headaches for Angela Merkel and so we get this contrast so these are things that are he's still doing, we expect them to continue in the foreseeable future. But then we have a moment where I say, OK, all my list on the progressive side, it could technically be correct if I say he has signed executive orders. That's true, but I, I would then say I miss a bit of information. I miss that, that connotation that it's expected to continue. So by using the progressive, I impart a more accurate picture of of my expectation and my my judgment of the situation, whereas we can't do it the other way. You know, he's not currently building towers. We yeah, he shouldn't be making money off his companies while he's president. <laughs> Could be debatable. As far as we know, he's happy with Melania. He's not getting married getting married again. And so you have this contrast between these two types of actions. Yeah, so we kind of go into it like that and sort of think about. Yeah, the kind of real-life cases where you would use the the perfect progressive.
0: You're coming at it very much from the practical angle as opposed to the understanding the grammatical phenomenon behind it. Yeah. And being able to label it as such. So if I were to do the same things with my students, things that I would be expecting them to come up with would be things like the progressive implies incompleteness <laughs> or duration or limited duration. So it's a different approach.
1: Yeah, I guess our whole idea is, yeah, getting people to, to actively use the language as quickly as possible and thinking, um, I guess it comes from that whole, you know, as a child you don't learn the the reason behind it, you just learn to do it. The hardest examples is with living and working. I have lived, I have been living and contrasting there. Because I think as native speakers, I think we can be a little bit arbitrary in the perfect or perfect progressive when it comes to those things.
0: That problem is also compounded for Germans by the fact that they don't have a progressive aspect. They'd use a time adverbial to show that something is still happening now or to show that an action was ongoing. It's often non-essential in English. I think that makes it tricky for a German. That's one of the things I always tell my students. If you can't decide whether something is progressive or not, ask yourself if the sentence in German would have some kind of time adverbial, would it, Would you have a word like at the moment or mm-hmm. right now? Because in German, if you have momentan or gerade, that's always a trigger for using the progressive in English.
1: Ah, interesting. But overusing the present progressive, I guess, is a classic German failing. And often at the higher levels, I find they're still saying, oh, yes, yeah my aunt is living in Paris um, and I think there's something along the way there obviously that that idea of a temporariness isn't um, conveyed and that's something maybe I don't have a quick fix for yeah I mean you, you try and say okay when you say it like this it sounds like it, it's a temporary thing but I'm constantly correcting things that should just be present simple
0: I guess as a native speaker of English you don't even give a second thought to whether something is ongoing or whether it's something that just is so whether it's a state or whether it's an action so I live in Germany state but if my brother were here maybe he'd be living in Germany because it's only a temporary action and maybe he'd intend to leave again
1: yeah yeah I often I find it comes up for business people often um, when they talk about what's being done by who in their company So when they say, instead of saying this is handled um, by the Munich office you know they'll say this is being handled or this is, yeah the Munich office is doing this. And so then for me I have to say okay well is this a temporary thing, do you normally do it and they're doing it at the moment.
0: Yeah are they just doing it this week or do they always do it?
1: (laughs) Yeah at any time it's something that's always. Yeah, they need to use the simple, but it's, yeah, it's a hard one.
0: Next time, Anna and I will be back with some more musings on language, the nature of education, and what the future might hold for educators. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, feel free to contact me via the contact form on grandiosegrammar.com or over on Twitter. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.